Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Amen, amen. Good to see everyone tonight. If you're watching online, I want to welcome you. Maybe you're a spring breaker and you're watching from Florida or something. I want to welcome you, even though we're all jealous of you right now. But uh, I'm glad to be here tonight. I just wanted to say, uh, wow, what a beautiful way to end just worshiping Jesus for giving us life. Amen. Can anyone testify that Jesus has not just saved you from hell, but given you life. Yes. Amen. And I'd like us to, uh, yeah, just to continue to contemplate and consider that our faith is not just a get out of hell free card, but it's an invitation to follow this man, Jesus, who told us to pick up our cross and to follow him. And it's in that journey that our life becomes a life. And I'm just uh, so thankful to God for... Um, just our, our church family and so many just humble and hungry people. And I hope tonight just to encourage you, it's a little bit different message than I'm used to, uh, used to bringing. Usually the camera guys are really happy about this, but um, I had a knee injury and so I can't walk around as much. I, did, I had surgery about a month ago. The camera guys are not happy that I got hurt, but usually I'm like a, I'm, I'm a walker, you know what I'm talking about? Like when I preach, I'm like here one second and then like the next second I'm over here. I like it, but for the camera guys, it just is really like it, it's difficult to follow. So they're, they're not happy I'm hurt, but they're happy I'm sitting tonight. And I'm going to uh, preach a message and really give a talk about faith and doubt. So the, really, it's, it's about faith and doubt. And I want to make a statement about, about doubt in particular. We live in a world that's full of doubt, uh, since, since the internet revolution and the access to knowledge and information, um, as a parent, it's no longer an option just to say, I, because I told you so. Um, when you're talking about matters of sex, when you're talking about matters of even Christianity, when you're talking about matters of knowledge and science, we can try to protect our kids and our family from outside voices, but what we've found is that, is that it's becoming more and more difficult and even seemingly impossible to insulate our kids and even our own minds from voices that seem to contradict what we believe. And once that happens, for, I would argue for all of us, and some of us hide it better than others, it leads us to doubt. It leads us to ask these questions, is what I believe really true? And I've had these experiences myself, even being a pastor, having moments in seasons of doubt. And in, in the past, I would have rejected it and rebuked the enemy and told him to get out of my room. But I've, I've discovered that in these seasons of doubt, I've learned to love Jesus, his kingdom, and his mission for my life even that much more faithfully. And I found that even in my doubt, Jesus is present and that he is not afraid of doubt and that he's not afraid of questions. And so I'd like to invite us just to lean into this and not to question everything we believe, but to 
be okay with questions that we might not have the answers to. And this is a message to parents who have kids who question. This is a message to anyone who has a coworker who has questions about our faith in, in Jesus of Nazareth. And anyone who has family members who are maybe living alternative lifestyles who claim that your faith in Christ is just a little intolerant for them. I believe that this message will speak to anyone in any season of life because more so than ever, we find a, a smorgasbord of different worldviews that we interact with on a consistent basis. Would you agree? And so, unbel- or, I'm sorry, so about this doubt and, and, and really unbelief. So doubt is an inquiry into mysteries that you don't quite understand. Doubt is an inquiry into mysteries that you don't quite understand. You can still have faith and doubt. But when we doubt, we don't want to doubt in a reckless manner. There's a term going around called deconstruction, right? Where these, these, these people, Christians, or maybe they grew up Christian, and they're deconstructing their faith. Meaning that they're taking what they believe and they're breaking it down and comparing it to other types of worldviews and beliefs. And I'm not recommending that we can deconstruct our faith. But I am, I am recommending that if you do have doubt, to bring it to Christ and not to YouTube. I could do like I could do like a whole series on that. You know what I mean? Just like what we're, we have questions, we have doubts, and instead of going to God, we're like going to WebMD. You know, we're like I'm having pain right here. What's going on with me? And then. You know, and we find out it's nothing, but we have a panic attack because we thought we had this sickness or that sickness. Anyway, that's beside the point. So the reason that we're afraid of doubt is that for some people, doubt has led to unbelief. And so we've made this correlation, but we know correlation does not equal causation. And so because we've seen friends, family members doubt and ultimately reject the faith, it's made us fearful to even have doubt. And so we suppress these questions instead of leaning into them with caution and with wisdom. Is everyone following? And so unbelief is the rejection of the manifestation of God where doubt is in leaning into a manifestation of God that we don't understand yet. And so I'm really trying to frame this out to say, like, listen, doubt can be actually a very powerful thing if we do it in relationship with Jesus, not out of pain or of wanting to win an argument or of out of proving something, but out of discovering Jesus and the scriptures um, in a way that we don't quite yet understand. And so if we have people in our lives who are doubting, Jude 22 has just a quick... Uh, quick tidbit of advice for us, which is to have mercy or to show mercy to those who doubt. So we, we are shown that we should be, be patient and merciful to them. So as we get going, I want to make a statement that we believe, if you're in this room, maybe not everyone, but I believe, and we would uphold in a Christian, a, a historical Christian worldview, and that we believe that's the truth that there's a creator God, and that creator God created everything, including humans, in the image of God, and he created us in such a way that we would be able to respond to when God provided a, a person in Jesus to save us from our sin, our original sin. And that only faith in Jesus grants us access to the grace or eternal life with our creator God. 
So this is kind of like right, our basic Christian worldview. And if we trust in Jesus, we know that he will gather all people who belong to him. So as we go on this journey, we are not, I'm not trying to deconstruct our faith. I'm trying to encourage us in how to navigate doubt when we actually do have faith. And so as a community, as a church family, let's have, show mercy to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters who do have questions. Um, I want to uh, throw some scripture. There's going to be multiple scriptures on the screen, and I'm going to break through them. And I'm going to talk about how we should have a reason for our faith, or we should have answers to questions, that we shouldn't just run away from cultural questions about gender, about sexuality, about the existence of God, about evolution, about any of these things. We should not run away from those. We should seek Jesus and wisdom from other Christians and seek how we can respond to our world when they bring objections to the Christian faith or our doubt. Because they have doubt, and oftentimes people who have had doubt and are genuinely curious have ran into a Christian who just says, I don't know, I have faith. And they're not bad actors trying to cause an argument. They're genuinely seeking to, to, to discern if our worldview is the truth. And too often people have been met with Christians who don't know, which further draws them away from God because they're met with a person who they would claim, I don't claim, I don't think we're ignorant, but this is what they would accuse us of, of being ignorant. And so I think we should have answers, right? Or not answers, we should have responses. Everyone say responses. And so we should have responses. Here's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. And so there's different applications to this verse. And I would, make, I would make this an application to us tonight. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So now we've often heard this in our church family that this is taking our thoughts captive to right worry and anxiety and unforgiveness. We take our thoughts captive. There's also another application is that men and women of God who have a reason, who have an articulated reason for their faith that when people come into their spheres and they challenge the existence of God and the scriptural worldview, we have a response and we destroy, not destroy as in malicious and violent, but we destroy through articulate and and in confidence and humble speech, we destroy arguments that raise themselves up against the knowledge of Christ and the biblical worldview. Does this make sense? And so we're not just people who are lovey-dovey, let's just love our enemies. We're people who love our en- enemies, but also are, are, are in pursuit of, of a worldview that responds to cultural narratives and arguments. Does this make sense? So anyways, there's our next, our next verse. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Make a defense. This is a, like a legal term that you're coming to, to make your case for why you believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Messiah, and our Creator God. Why do we believe? Do we believe because our family handed down our faith? Do we believe because 
we're afraid of going to hell or do we believe because we've had an encounter with Jesus that is so real and genuine? Well, let's continue to mature as Christians. We've had that encounter. We've seen this goodness of God. And now let's develop a way of thinking that gives responses to our coworkers, our kids, our family members. Not that can save them, but that can offer a reasonable response and a reasonable world uh, explanation for why we believe what we believe. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become intellectuals. I'm not suggesting that we be all become scholars. What I'm going to show us in the next 22 minutes is, are, are two arguments that I hear often as a pastor, specifically with young people, and how I've learned to respond to these objections to Christianity. But as we, um, as we continue, I want to share a few more verses. Titus 1, verse 9. So this is talking about a, a person in the church, like a leader in the church. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in the sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke kind of is like a violent term, not violent, but it's an aggressive term. It just means we need to be able to respond to objections to the faith that we hold. Right? And how are we going to respond unless we've pre-thought through how we would respond to objections to the Christian faith? We have to do a little bit of homework. And the homework isn't for me. Our homework is, is as a Christian, we have kids, peers, co-workers, parents, siblings who have real objections. And we, as Christians, should pursue responses to the questions not to try to save them through responses, but to build a bridge of relationship to show them the kindness of Jesus and the goodness of our God. So 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So here, we're going to give responses to people, but at the same time, we're not supposed to just go and debate and win arguments. Amen? We don't need any more of that in our culture. So able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So when we're correcting, not our opponents, even though it says opponents, when we're, when we're correcting or having a conversation with our peers, with a coworker, with a child, with a parent, with a sibling, when we're having that conversation, we should do it with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And lastly, Acts 19, verse 8, this is speaking of the Apostle Paul. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Listen, look at these two words. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We often view Paul as this miracle worker, which he was. But for three months he was in the synagogue persuading and reasoning with the cultural leaders and people in the town about the kingdom of God. He was not just working in power. He was someone who had articulate speech in order to build a bridge to people to bring, in order that they might see Christ and that those people might escape the snare of the devil like it's talked about in 2 Timothy 2. So let's keep moving. So the two things that I want to address, these are not the only two objections to Christianity right, or a Christian worldview, but two common ones that I think are easy enough that we could all get. Like all of us can walk away knowing that like, not that you would win an argument, but we would have a response to someone in our life who would bring up this objection, which is pretty common. So there are a lot of secular objections or arguments against Christianity, and I don't want to make them all to be stupid. Some of them are 
not reasonable, but they're reasonable, right? You would, I can understand why you'd have that question. And I think the first point is we shouldn't, we shouldn't accuse and come at it from a place of pride, but we should come at these conversations from a place of humility, knowing that these are not bad actors, that most people are just curious. Some people are hurting, and some people have been hurt by the church, hurt by Christians, and hurt by life to the point that they're trying to make sense of life. And so for the longest time, I didn't know how to answer objections. I remember I was talking to one of our young adult leaders, Zach Gershel, and we were talking about this concept. And we remember, uh, we remember how we were talking about how we've responded differently to people who have had objections to, to Christianity. I had friends from high school and friends from college that would object. And, I, and this is what I would say, something like this. Like, I, I've just ha- I just have a relationship with God. No, 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 no. Okay, but like, why do you believe well, I've just, I, I've just met God. O- okay, but like, what about evolution? Well, I just have faith in God. Well, okay, what about genders? What about the gender theory? What about, what about all these things, right? And you're just like, I just believe in God. <laughs> and it comes to the point where we're just like, we don't have a response to the objections or the questions or the curiosities that our friends have. No, I'm not expecting all of us to know every objection, right, and have a response to everything. But there are some basics that I think we can, we can establish tonight. Another one that we'd always say was Zach was saying this. To reach those people, we'll say, I'm going to love them. Which, yes, love. Love your enemy. Love people. Like, love everyone. Show kindness and gentleness and pray for them. Or I'll pray for them. But what if our Christian worldview has a reasonable response to their question? We should love them and give them a response. I think we've been lazy, which is interesting because we have so much access to information and knowledge about Christian worldview and, and responses. All you have to do is go on YouTube, type in the topic that you're, and you'll find either Tim Keller, you'll find Sean McDowell, you'll find these different pastors and doctors and leaders who already have responses that are tested through centuries that you can learn. It's almost like the easier that it's gotten, the lazier we've gotten. It's like we know the starting lineup of the Detroit Lions and we know we, know we have the prediction for what the experts say the record's going to be next year, but we don't have a response to our son who's in college who's questioning his faith. Right? It's like we have all the information about the car and how to fix the car and the engine and this type of engine, but we don't have a response to our coworker who's been curious and we've just prayed for them silently while we've studied uh, frivolous, unimportant topics. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of being lazy, but I am saying we can do better. And if you have someone in your life, God's positioned you in a place to have influence. You should love them. You should pray for them. But you should consider researching and doing some homework to find a reasonable response, because there are many, from a trusted Christian source and how to give them a response to a question they have. I know a lot of you are saying, well, what are you going to teach tonight? Come on, get to it. So before I get into it, I'll just remind us, 1 Peter 3 tells us to do this with gentleness and respect. So here's the first objection. There can't be one true religion. Raise your hand if you've heard this. There can't be one true religion. So Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, 
the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So scripture, our, our scriptural worldview teaches us there is one God, there is one religion, all other ways are false. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, all other ways the Christian worldview would claim are false. And so an agnostic or an atheist would say there can't be one true religion. In a panel with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, this is what he says in his book, The Reason for God. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. See, the men on this panel agreed that there are irreconcilable differences between the three different religions. Three men, experts in their religion, claimed these religions cannot coexist and all be true. And there are some in our society, who I find is interesting, aren't religious, claim that the religious people are wrong about them being able to coexist. And they would claim that, to, to claim that one religion is superior to another religion is, here's the buzzword, intolerant. It is intolerant. It is mean. It is, it is short-sighted. It is, it is ignorant to think that your Christian worldview can be the only true worldview. So this is their proposal. <laughs> this is a fun one. Each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but they do not see the whole truth. Is this on the screen? Sweet. Each religion sees a part of spiritual truth, but they do not see the whole truth. So the best way I can explain this is through um, the old tale of the elephant and the blind men. The elephant and the blind men. And this illustration, you can throw, throw the picture up there. Um, this illustration goes that there are blind men and they're each touching a different part of the elephant. So one of them touches the trunk and says, oh, it's like this. The one touches the leg and he's describing the leg and the other's touching the tail and he's describing the tail. And all these different blind men are claiming to have truth, yet they're only touching a part of it. So this agnostic claim would say that, this agnostic claim would say that this is what religion is like. You see, Christians have a piece of it, and Muslims have a piece of it, and the New Age has a piece of it, and Hindus have a piece of it, and listen, guys, if we could all just get together, we would just have so much fun. You see, there's a major problem with this explanation. And here's the point. Um, if you have kids in high school or college, you may not be talking to them about this, but this is the predominant worldview of our generation which means that if you are not teaching and talking about this with your kids, even your college-age kids, this is what they believe. But I, I raised them up going to Res Life. It doesn't matter. You bring them here once a week. They're in their schools every day. They're on YouTube every day. They're on TikTok every day. They're on, they're on Instagram every day. And the predominant worldview is a postmodern, relativist worldview. This is what they believe. 
And even if they don't believe it, it's underlying. Because the world is telling them, don't be intolerant. If you're intolerant, we will, we will destroy you. We will excommunicate you from our friend group, from our school, from all of society if you do not bow to the relativist postmodern worldview. And so your, your child may be well-meaning. Your, your child may be, may be a good kid and love God, but this is still impacting them. It's still having an impact on their, on their belief in God, their view of the world, and their view of themselves. And so it would, do, it would do you well to listen, but also to do even more research and start a conversation with your child or your even college student about matters of truth. So, like I said, there's a major issue with this, with this objection. Major issue. Meaning, not just from a Christian, from a philosophical, logical standpoint. So, the person making this claim that all spiritual, all religions are the same, they're making this claim, if you can throw the, the picture of the elephant back up, they're making this claim as someone who isn't blind looking at the elephant. Does this make sense? I'll say it again. The person making the claim is, is, is saying, I can see the whole elephant. They're claiming a type of truth that they, that they say is, is a, say that you can't have because it's an absolute truth claim, right? So they're making a claim from, it's a prideful claim. I mean, think about it. They're like, listen, all of you are wrong. I'm right. I can see. Now, I'm not saying that they're, they're bad actors. They'd really believe this, but it's our job to say, wait, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. But you're saying that you can see all truth then. And you're claiming that your worldview is actually the right worldview, which you said I can't do. Right? Because you just told me that there can't be one true religion, but your perspective is a type of religion that you're saying is the truth. Is this making sense? Give me a thumbs up if this is making sense. Okay. The point is, it's an absolute truth claim, but they, but they say that no one is allowed to have an absolute truth claim because that's intolerant and narrow-sighted. So this perspective assumes a view of God which is more enlightened than, than major historical religions. The supporters of this postmodern idea do the very same thing they forbid others to do. And so as, as you hear your child or per, someone might not use the elephant analogy, but you have to pick up on what they're saying, that there is no such thing as truth and there can't be one true religion. And our response to that, <laughs> our response to that is showing them that their claim that there can't be is actually, it's, it's a false claim that doesn't stand up to logic and reasoning by bringing up the elephant and showing them that they're making a claim that they cannot support or defend or define re, uh, reasonably. So our next, our next uh, topic that we're going to address, our next claim, is, is a social one that I've actually heard quite often. I've experienced it. All religions, so the first one was all religions, or there can't be one true religion, that all religions are the same, or different expressions of the same thing. The second claim is that all religions are false. All religions are equally false. And so the, uh, there are multiple sets of arguments 
in this stream, like science and history, but for today we'll, we'll focus on this one argument, that social conditions lead to knowledge and religion. So here's how it goes, basically. If you were born in Iraq, instead of Michigan, you would not be a Christian. That, that's the basics. Raise your hand if you've like heard this or something like, like heard an argument like this. Come on, a little bit higher if you've heard of it. Okay, maybe you haven't, but it's, it's common. If you were born in Iraq, you'd actually, you'd most likely be a Muslim and you wouldn't be a Christian. And some of us are like, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. And they're, they're tugging on something, but the point is, is that this, this doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> I'll try to show you why. So the problem is, is that this claim really hinges on that knowledge is based on social conditioning, right? That knowledge, your knowledge of the truth is based on the environment in which you grew up in. And the reason they're saying is like Michigan, it's like West Michigan, a conservative area, a lot of churches. The reason you're a Christian is because of the people you're around. And the reason that I, people in Iraq are Muslim is because that's the people they're around. <laughs> the person making this claim, though, grew up in America. And America is an individualistic, skeptic, and relativist culture. To which I often, and I have done this, to which I will respond by saying, <laughs> the only reason why you have that view is because you are, grew up in a relativist, skeptical, and individualistic society. The only, the only, <laughs> the only cultures that are postmodern are Western cultures, meaning that that reason isn't a reason against God at all. That's not a reason to not believe in God. Because social conditioning is a, is, a, is a very real thing, but also reasoning is important, right? Reasoning is important and faith is important. Things that we can't prove. So social knowledge is important. Reasoning, logical reasoning is important. And what we place our faith in is important, which we'll get to in a minute. And so the reason why this claim doesn't hold up <laughs> is what we say to that person, well, if you grew up in Iraq, you would not be a relativist, postmodern <laughs> socialist, or whatever they are. It's saying that the very same reason you're using against me to try to disprove God, I'm going to use to, sit, to disprove your worldview and to say, we should look at something higher. Make sense so far? And so this is basic stuff. Now, this isn't, these aren't all the arguments. Like I said, a lot of college students and young people are going to have uh, they're going to have questions about uh, gender. They're going to have sex questions about uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. They're going to have questions about um, all whole creation. How old is the universe? They're going to have these objections. And I encourage us, don't run away. Don't run away from the talk on evolution. Don't run away from the talk about homosexuality and same-sex attraction and transgenderism because there are reasonable responses from the Christian worldview that we can give to them. They might not like them, but they are reasonable, they are scriptural, and we can deliver them with humility. And ultimately, I would argue that our, it, the issues of gender and sexuality are built up on top of the po these postmodern ideas. The postmodern, that there is no such thing as truth, actually gave birth 
to the sexual revolution and gave birth to our, 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 the sexual revolution that we're all experiencing before our eyes right now. The undergirding uh, belief and philosophy is that there is no universal truth, which is a postmodern relativist worldview. And so they'll, they'll claim that there is no such thing as absolute truth. The silly thing about that is that the claim that there is no absolute truth is an absolute truth claim. And so why should I believe what you just said? Because it's not universally true. And the thing that we have to realize is that uh, this line of logic and reasoning often isn't a value for postmoderns, postmodern people and people that influenced. And so we have to be patient and we can't get frustrated because we're like, this makes total sense. How do you not get this in your head? And we get frustrated, but we got to realize they're people that Jesus has died for and that we can be patient and gentle and show respect to people as they're on their journey. So the question that we want to ask ourselves as we continue moving on is, or the question is, which beliefs about God, creator, about human nature, about the universe and spirituality, which, which of these things are really true? Which beliefs are true? In the Christian view, has an exclusive view on the nature of God centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is reasonable, historic, historical for us to believe in our worldview. It is, we do not have blind faith. None of us have blind faith. Our faith is rooted in historical evidence. It's rooted in reason that it makes sense to our minds and to our, into our worldview. And it is, it is rooted in a, in a document in the scriptures that is proven, even though thousands and thousands of atheist scholars have tried to disprove the Bible every time they try, it has become more proven that it is an historical document written in the first century and there has been no tainting of the original documents since the first century when it was written and it was even not tainted since before Jesus came and that the scriptures are in fact historically accurate to the time period with no changes. There are changes, but they're, they're so little that they make no difference. So we have a reasonable faith. Do you know that there, were, there, that there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus? And that those accounts are written in the Bible? It's almost like God knew what he was doing, that people were going to question if it really happened. So he had witnesses. Those witnesses gave their accounts. Those accounts went in the Bible. That Bible was preserved. And it is the most preserved document, historical document, that we have. We quote Shakespeare all the time, right? We're like, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. We have about 2,000 more historical documents from the Bible than we do about Shakespeare. And everybody's like, oh, Shakespeare, and all these things, right? And we have all these writings from Augustine and all these things from Josephus. There, are, there is so much more proof of the Bible than any of those historical documents, but people have an interest in disproving God. And every time they try, he laughs in their face. Don't take my word for it. You can do your own research, but be wise in your search because there are dishonest people who will try to lead us astray. But there are faithful men and women of God who have done their research humbly and they've sought out the historical scientific evidence for the preservation of the scriptures and they have, they have proven over and over and over again that is in fact the infallible, preserved words of God written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so 
It is reasonable for us to believe in Jesus in a Christian worldview where there's a creator God who comes and and visits us and has built a relationship with us through Jesus Christ. They express the truth about the nature of God, the, the nature of man, and the way to salvation that is consistent with history, sociology, and personal experience. Christianity is no more exclusive than the postmodern view. We just draw our lines in different places. Listen, one of the, most, one of the things I wanted to communicate to us in a culture where we are told that Christians are so intolerant, I'm here to tell you, you are not intolerant. You are not unloving to hold your views of the Bible. You are not narrow-minded. You may not have the responses that you could have, but you are not. And here's the point. We draw our lines in different places. Every worldview has a set of unprovable set of beliefs. Agnostics, atheists, they all put their faith in something. We have chosen to put our faith in Jesus of Nazareth who is, who is revealed in the scriptures and who has revealed himself to us personally and through the body of Christ, through the preservation of the scriptures and through the witness that we have with our spirit, we put our faith in Jesus. That is not an unreasonable thing. Let me show you two, let me give you two examples of unprovable sets of beliefs. Unprovable. Human rights. Let's give you the example. No one can prove why every culture institutes some form of human rights. When evolution in, in, in nature is survival of the fittest and the strong eat the weak, and yet humans across every culture set up their culture in a way to protect vulnerable people and to fight for the rights in different ways of vulnerable people. Almost every culture has uh, justice served to people who murder, who rape women, who exploit children. We have this innate thing that is unprovable. You can't prove that human rights are a thing. Your morals are another thing. You can't prove your morals, and yet every atheist has them. So it's not, we're not trying to accuse them and, and accuse them anything. We're trying to show them that everyone has a set of unprovable beliefs. And I'm not trying to wing an argument, but I'm saying, that's, these are my reasons for believing in the scriptures. Would you, would you consider it? Would you not just dismiss it and call us short-sighted intolerant people, but lean into why we follow this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And maybe look beyond the pain that you had from church or from another Christian or from your upbringing and say, maybe Jesus did really come to save humanity. The scriptures reveal Jesus, a personal God, stepping into reality to offer himself to humanity in all of their sin, rebellion, selfishness, and brokenness. The scriptures reveal the central figure of Jesus who died for the sin of humanity but was raised back to life. His resurrection was witnessed by dozens and dozens of people and documented. His resurrection, along with the truth that we find in Scripture, reveals to the searching and humble the personal creator God who suffers alongside of us while giving us strength and perspective to love our world and secure hope for our existence beyond this life. Is Christianity exclusive? You betcha. But not any more exclusive than any other worldview, including the postmodern. Christianity is the only religion that exists and grows in every culture. You know that, the, you know that the, the most common Christian isn't a white American? 
Do you know that the most common Christian right now it's being debated is either an African or, or a South American citizen. That white Americans, there's this concept in America, in the West specifically, that it's a white person's religion. Jesus was Jewish. He looked nothing like me. And it grows in every culture. You go to China, it's growing. There are more Christians in China than there are in America. And it's illegal to be a Christian there. In the last 100 years, Africa has has grown from 9% Christian to over 50% Christian in the last 100 years. There's revival happening all over South America. And these are reasons to believe why our Lord Jesus of Nazareth who came 2,000 years ago, raised back to life and has borne witness to millions upon millions of people. There's a reason to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I encourage us all as we move forward in our lives and our relationships, either with kids, coworkers, friends, parents, siblings, that we remember 1 Peter 3.15 which says, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're watching online. And you are a doubter, a skeptic, one who is searching for Jesus. And tonight, you sense something happening on the inside of you where this creator God who came and suffered alongside of us and revealed himself to humanity, he is drawing you to relationship with him. He's drawing you to have eternal life. Our culture will tell you that good people go to heaven. It is a lie. Forgiven people go to heaven. And the way that we receive forgiveness is by abandoning our pride and our need to control, abandoning our love for sin and love for this perverted generation and to cling to Jesus, to confess our faith and our hope and trust and who he is, and what he did. And as we express our faith, he promises to forgive our sin, but more importantly, to grant us eternal life. If you've never done that, or you need to do that today, I don't want to leave without giving you an opportunity. So on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And by raising your hand, it's not for me. It's just an outward It's an outward confession of what's happening on the inside of you. So you sense God doing something in your heart and you're responding to that work in your heart to say, yes, Jesus, I am yours. I want to be forgiven. On the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. One, two, three. I just want to pray with you. I see that hand. If you're online, yeah, I see that hand over there. If you're online, We'll give you an option to respond in just one minute. Would I just have everyone just repeat after me? Read this prayer after me. Say, Heavenly Father, 
thank you for loving me by sending Jesus to earth to not only live, but to suffer and to go on the cross so that I could be forgiven and to raise back to life so that I could have a brand new life. I offer my life to you as broken as it is and I ask, I I have your way in me. Help me to live this thing out as best I can. I love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.